This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 18th, 2021, and this is episode 227. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, gangs, guns, and China. First, thank you to the 102 people who contribute to keep this podcast running every month. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicos. If you do, and you do so at the $5 rate, you won't have to listen to this ad. Let's hear it. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's jump into our first segment, Gangs and Guns. The federal liberals have introduced two major bills to try to bring forward some of the promises they made in the throne speech and in the last election. They want to introduce a voluntary, it turns out, firearm buyback program, and they're going to be scrapping some minimum, some mandatory minimum sentences. But there are plenty of critics to both bills. Let's dig into the gun bill first. Bill C-21 released, I think yesterday, day before, very recently. The government is building off the assault-style weapon ban that they released last year following, oh, it was following the Port Port Peak shootings out east in Nova Scotia. Man, everything is slipping my mind as I am so focused on house hunting right now. Well, I, I mean, to be honest, I did not even realize this was nine months ago until the I read the story because time has no meaning anymore. So, yeah, no, it's just pandemic rain and everything's, I think, and all of us. But yeah, they, these are largely follow-ups to that. And that particular ban is more honestly, I think, described as a ban on 10 random guns that look a little scarier than the average one because I mean, styled as an assault weapons or an assault style weapon man, but it, it was really just 10 models that roughly fit into that category, but like equivalent firearms were just left out. It, it was really just a weird, like the liberals wanted a good headline out of its story more than anything else. Yeah. And the promise they had made was to build off of something like an Australian-style gun buyback program where we try and get guns off out of people's hands. Primarily legal guns, ones that people have licenses for and have met all of the strict requirements to possess, on the theory that fewer guns in society will make us safer, which I'm sympathetic to, but it's tough to see how successful this will be. The details of the buyback program have not been fully released yet. Those will come, I guess, in the regulations. It's still estimated to cost between $400 and $600 million. 
but we do know that the subset of people who will refuse who refuse to give up their guns or sell off their guns will have to abide by strict conditions they have to agree not to use the weapons to import or acquire more of them or to bequeath them to anyone else so it's kind of you can keep your gun but the government will pry it from your cold dead hands yeah this is actually pretty common with a lot of prohibited firearms that got classified at some point and then existing owners were grandfathered in there's a decent number of them out there that fit into this category so not really a surprise here it's not entirely clear why the liberals have moved to a voluntary rather than a mandatory buyback program i wonder if there's some constitutional argument they're a little afraid of or some related legal issue that they're just like let's hedge our bets a little make it scale it back i'm not sure about that governments can seize property as long as it's reasonably compensated and and they're talking about i think was it thirteen hundred dollars is the estimated average cost and i don't know what market prices are too much but like that's uh, maybe a little on the low end but like not an unreasonable approximation so you're saying there's not a good investment strategy here right now to buy a bunch of guns with the hope of the government seizing them probably not that does not seem like a good uh, arbitrage opportunity at least at first glance but yeah I, I mean i think my bigger problem with this isn't so much the details of whether or not they have a buyback program or not it's goes back to what we talked about when the ban was first announced in that it's just such a grab bait of 10 random guns and some of their variants that just doesn't make a huge amount of sense technically because semi-automatic guns that are equivalent in almost every way to the 10 on the list are still non-restricted firearms. So it's just kind of incoherent for that reason, more so than any details around a buyback program. I think the one part of this bill that looks a little bit more promising maybe is what are called these red flag and yellow flag laws, which I hadn't really heard of before, but I'm not big into pro or anti-gun lobbying and what we should do around there. But these are laws that would allow individuals to make an application to a court to remove someone else's firearm if they deem them potentially uh, at risk of using it against themselves or other people. And this could do a lot to help in cases of domestic violence, suicide, etc., Courts are very slow is the risk here. Yeah, so... Yeah, I believe already there's mechanisms that exist in theory for firearms to be seized from licensed owners or at least temporarily removed when there is a identified risk. But there's, it hasn't always worked out too well in practice, so putting in some laws and policies to help more formalize that and provide an easier path for that seems like a fairly reasonable reform and yeah, probably the best part of this package. And the announcement also came at the same time that municipalities will be able to ban handguns, which was another campaign promise. This was greeted 
very positively by Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and I believe Toronto's Mayor John Tory. Effectively, this would allow municipalities, if they passed a bylaw, to restrict the possession, storage, and transportation of handguns. Now, municipalities are given their powers by the provinces, so the provinces will have to amend their community charter or equivalent legislation to first allow the municipality to pass a law that will then trigger criminal code provisions. It's very complicated federalism happening here. But essentially, if a municipality passes this bylaw, then it could trigger people facing stiffer pines, st stiffer penalties than just a fine. So it, I don't think John Tory is probably going to get his wish, just as I don't think Doug Ford is going to be a champion at the pit to bring in that particular provincial law. I think, uh, Kennedy Stewart is probably going to have a much more receptive provincial government here in BC. But that doesn't make the underlying policy make any more sense. And this is just such a head scratcher of a idea. So handguns are restricted firearms, which basically means in addition to requiring a license, there's a whole bunch of other strict rules and regulations around there, and they are very highly regulated in our system. And basically, you can't have one of these handguns anywhere but safely locked away with the ammunition locked separately in your home or at a gun range or at a gunsmith, licensed gunsmith. And you have to get special paperwork to just take it between those different locations. You're not even allowed to like, stop for coffee on the way between those locations without violating the rules on that. And, um, and yeah, committing an offense by doing so. It's like these are, it's not like people could just have handguns laying around loaded somewhere without already breaking a whole bunch of criminal laws. And so that just makes me think, like, what is the point of also adding safely secured, locked away in one's home or at a fire and range or licensed gunsmith to the list? Like, what does that actually do in terms of increasing safety? Yeah, the point is basically, there are a lot of gun owners who are following all the laws or doing everything they can as far as we can tell, like the data on this is murky because there's such competing evidence. But as far as I think we can tell, law-abiding gun owners in Canada are largely not the ones committing crimes or at least using those weapons in crimes. It's illicitly, illicitly begotten firearms that are the issues. So if someone buys an illegal firearm, that's when they're tending to commit violent acts, especially gang violence and whatever else the liberals are talking about. So, yeah, they're targeting it's, and that's yeah, a really hard issue to solve. And so, the easy thing to do is it, it, the one exactly. that's popular and being called for by people who are saying we should do something. Yeah, the, the problem with a lot of the we should do something around firearms is they most people calling for that don't actually know the somethings that are already being done 
which leads to a lot of incoherent suggestions like let municipalities ban handguns. And like the, the net result of this is probably going to be a few people in Vancouver sell their handguns and maybe a few people in Vancouver move to Burnaby or Port Moody or, or one of the other municipalities in the immediate area that won't be bringing in this bylaw. And it's hard to call that a public safety win by any means. And like you said, there, there is, it's a tough problem. And it's not like there's never been a licensed gun owner that's committed a crime using the guns they are licensed to own. But like, it very much is the exception when it comes to gun crime. And it's just one of these hard problems that you just, there, all the low-hanging fruit's being picked and to make further progress, you kind of got to do the unglamorous work of basic policing, better border security, better, more efforts to interdict guns coming up from the states. I, that doesn't let the prime minister do a big, you know, press conference and announce a bunch of legislation. But like, that's really what it's going to take because fundamentally, this isn't a problem where the legal tools aren't there. It's a problem where the laws have to be enforced better. Also, we just don't have a lot of gun crime in Canada. Like, it happens, and it's a shame and a tragedy when it does but like it's not the most calm like it's shocking and that's why it makes the news and why it gets attention but like as far as i know gun crime is not significant i think it accounts for about a third of murders or firearms so it's, it's not nothing and like every single one of those is absolutely a tragedy but yeah, it, it becomes a problem where if you really want to make progress on it, you, you got to just do things like give police more resources to tackle this and do better border security. It's it's not the sort of thing. Well, but like we don't have a lot of murder, murder, right? We don't have a lot of murder. So yes, guns are going to make up a lot of the murders, but we don't have as much murder. Yeah, I mean, we're yeah, we're, we're nowhere near the states in both the total murder rate or the percentage of that yeah. that is firearms related. So the whole issue is kind of messy for me. These reforms are not going to do probably like, you know, I'm kind of happy to see fewer guns. My dad has some long guns for hunting and, you know, those are going to always be fine. But a lot of the other guns, I'm kind of just not i don't understand the culture the need to hold them at least we don't have an nra level obsession in this country there's like a canadian yeah but they only get quoted association yeah, but they're the government kind of just needs someone weird to quote, and, or the media needs someone to quote. yeah and yeah it's not like when the uh conservatives come in they loosen up a bunch of rules or anything we have a large complex system. The changes that got made under Harper, some which got reversed, were more or less kind of mostly trying to rationalize a slightly Byzantine system. But like, it's not like the case where we have a party that is committed to just letting every Canadian willy-nilly get guns. It very much feels like a problem where 
we tend to import American politics or let American issues kind of cloud our own issues here in Canada with this stuff. And yeah, like you said, it's probably not going to do much. It may be one of those things where like five years from now, there's going to be a research paper that shows when you do a bunch of regressions, there's a statistically significant, but in absolute terms, not that big effect that you can kind of pick out from a lot of careful data analysis. But it is very unlikely that five years later, Canadians are going to just feel much safer against guns than they do now. Well, speaking of the policy lurch between the Conservatives and the Liberals, the other big move the Liberals are making this week is to scrap mandatory minimum sentences for some drug charges. They're basically doing a... It's not an omnibus bill. The Liberals don't do that. It's a large bill from uh, Justice Minister David Lipmedi to ostensibly tackle systemic racism in the justice system, part of that at least. So they're going to be repealing 14 of the 67 mandatory minimum sentences in the criminal code, as well as all six of the mandatory minimums in the Controlled Drug Act, in the Controlled Drug and Substances Act. These are the types of laws that say if a person is charged with this crime, the judge has no choice but to sentence the person for it. A time period of at least, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. These have often been criticized and found unconstitutional at many levels of Canadian court because our justice system is really based on judicial independence and being able to take into account individual circumstances. And often mandatory minimums can exacerbate systemic racism. So I I don't hate the idea of mandatory minimums and think that generally, like just as a, how you should think about governance, all else being equal, like deciding which crimes carry which penalties and including what is the minimum of that is sort of the thing that should probably be that left to our duly elected governments rather than the courts. But that's also mostly for, you know, particularly morally egregious crimes like murder, which does carry a minimum sentence and it's not being repealed in this case. Um, but yeah, for stuff that is at best morally neutral, such as possession of various drugs that, yeah, there's no real moral dimension to that. Yeah, getting rid of the mandatory minimums is good. Particularly when it's turned out that our courts haven't all agreed on which mandatory minimums are constitutional and which aren't. We've had a lot of cases go to various levels of courts, the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal, and all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Provincial Supreme Court, the Courts of Appeal, and all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And they've not always agreed. And if it doesn't get decided at the Supreme Court of Canada because the federal government doesn't appeal it all the way just to get that finality, you have the case where a mandatory minimum might apply in every province except Ontario. And that kind of judicial patchwork for our criminal code is not great. It's really not great. Yeah, it's another reason why I kind of much prefer it when you have the legislative branch setting this one rather than a 
patchwork of judicial precedent. But that applies to so many things, right? The courts are always going to be at some point deciding the constitutionality of laws. And if they're not appealed to the Supreme Court, you can end up in this situation. It just happens there are a lot of mandatory minimums. And so it does get challenged a lot more. The ans- the clear answer is that the government has a duty when a court finds something un- unconstitutional to either appeal it all the way up to the Supreme Court or change the law. And instead, we kind of ended up with a quasi-zombie law situation where they just didn't want to do either. And that's the worst of all worlds. So at least they're doing some good steps towards clarifying that patchwork. But the government's also looking at doing a couple other changes to our justice system. They are going to allow for the greater use of conditional sentencing. These are alternatives to jail time, such as house arrest or mandatory counseling, for example. This can be largely good since jail is a pretty severe punishment for many crimes. And there is a risk, as many, including Harsha Wally of the BCCLA and others have pointed out, that things like house arrest can lead to just like different pathways to criminalization where if you breach these administrative provisions of your sentence, you can still end up in jail even though you the crime you committed wasn't punishable by jail. And so I think there's more thinking required around how to approach this, particularly around what you're talking about with the morally neutral drug crimes, which I really appreciate that language, but I don't think all conservatives would agree with you, Scott, especially the religious ones. Yeah, it's yeah. there's definitely uh, a variety of thoughts on that one. And finally, the bill would require police to consider alternative measures for cases of sim- simple drug possession, such as diversion to addiction treatment programs, rather than pro- necessarily referring them to prosecution. Like, this is fine and seems like at least a half step in the right direction, but it's kind of just a like checkbox essentially exercise. Like, I'm not convinced that this is going to solve racism. If anything, it just creates another pathway for racism. Like, if you have a racist police force, they are going to say, oh yeah, we considered it, but all of these indigenous people, all these whatever they're going to say about them, they're not going to be helped by addiction treatment programs. They're just clearly beyond the pale and we'll have to send them to jail. So like simply just requiring it to be considered doesn't feel like enough, which is why so many advocates, including the chiefs of police of this country, are calling for widespread decriminalization of simple possession. Yeah, I don't get why the liberals are so resistant to this uh, on decriminalization. It's a relatively small step. They're trying to move it in such like piecemeal fashion that it. If you don't like drugs, they're already going to get the bad press for every small little step they do, rather than just blanket decriminalization. If you think it shouldn't be a criminal matter, like it's they they don't get any credit for that either. It's, just such a weird spot they seem to be stuck in on this that I haven't been able to figure out the rationale for. I, it's not a politically like unanimous winning position yet. I think it's more popular than 
most political strategists in the pop parties think, but I think it's also still controversial enough that it's seen as a wedge that the liberals don't want to give the conservatives. And from that point of view, for the marginal voter. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I know, yeah, like, I, I know the circles we hang out in, like, decriminalization is very non-controversial and maybe outside of that, that's, it's still a bit of a political uh, hot potato. But like, I, I do think that if they were just to not legalize, but just go for decriminalization, which for a bunch of stuff that was criminalized, it's kind of moving into a de facto decriminalization or like piecemeal parts. They're, the federal government's talking to BC and the city of Vancouver on like a localized zone of decriminalization. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me why they want to stick their neck out for that, but not just go all the way and let and push things forward. And I don't know. I, I do get the sense that the you know the general culture has moved on quite a bit from you know the heyday of the war on drugs, and there just isn't as big a big a pushback as I think they might fear. Well, can, Canadian politics is nothing if not uh, small C conservative, at least in terms of the willingness to pursue bold policy ideas, especially in the 21st century, it seems. Moving on to our second segment, China. This week was yet another week where Canada's relationship with China dominated a lot of the federal political discussion, got kicked off by several parties, in fact, pretty much all the opposition parties at various points calling for the Canadian government and, well, Canada overall to either boycott the upcoming Beijing Olympics or... I guess, ask the IOC to move it to somewhere else. That The last one seems particularly unlikely to happen, but all of this is over the genocide being committed by the Chinese government against the Uyghur minority. Yeah, the IOC came straight out and said, it's way too late to move the Olympics. Do you realize what a <laughs> unstoppable force that is? Yeah, it's... <sighs> unlikely to happen to say the very least and i know at least the green party was floating the idea of bringing it to canada which like that is just even with all the existing olympic facilities in various parts of the country pulling that together in a couple of years is just a non-starter so well one year also when you say let's hold the olympics somewhere they're not committing a genocide don't suggest canada when we are. But yes, let's let's move it from <laughs> yeah, let's not go to China. That seems like a reasonable one. So that was kind of the other Yeah, let's not go to China. And like it's debates about that term and splitability to Canada right now. Uh, aside like the 
the human rights situation in the two countries is nowhere near the same. So like, the logistical problems are the main reason why that's a bad suggestion more than anything else. But speaking of whether or not that term's applicable, Trudeau ended up getting himself in quite a bit of hot water or this week over when he was asked about that, equivocating quite a bit on whether or not China is in fact committing the very well-documented genocide. So there was a Canada-China special committee formed by the opposition parties. It came together, it released its final report that concluded, yes, there is a genocide happening in to the Uyghurs in China. Did the liberals of that committee not sign on to that, or did they write a dissenting report? I don't remember. I cannot recall off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, so th there's been a yeah committee votes to recognize that part. The opposition parties using one of their opposition day motions to try and get the whole parliament to recognize that, which I think is going to likely pass based on where the other parties are. But like, more to the point, I, not to kind of reignite the debate over what Trudeau said back in 2019 over whether or not Canada was committing a genocide, which was very much disputed at the time, including by several uh, human rights groups. I think human rights lawyer Erin Coulter disagreed with that, as did, as did Romeo Dallaire. Like, several people well knowledgeable on the subject thought the term was inappropriate. But regardless, it it's frankly just bizarre that Trudeau would show kind of more consideration and hedge more when it came to, you know, a country that is holding Canadians hostage, that has a like clearly worse human rights record than we do on that when he was nowhere near that hesitant to apply it to his own government. And like, I... I, I just cannot understand the reasoning there. I, I, it was, I think, rather irresponsible and reckless of him to be so quick to adopt the term back in 2019, but pairing it with the hesitancy to use it here is just rather incomprehensible all around and definitely gives the impression that he is more concerned about the reputation with China than Canada's, which I'm sure is not what he actually cares about, but it really does come across that way. I mean, the strongest criticism or the most consistent criticism of Trudeau, I think, is that he is all style, no substance. And so caring about his domestic facade over like the principal questions to be dealt with at a foreign policy level isn't surprising, <laughs> right? That he would focus that way. Yeah. But like if he is more style than substance, y you would think that he would take the opportunity to, you know, but denounce a genocide. Like, but people it really don't does seem to be like a people don't care about China. They don't care about foreign policy. <laughs> Especially among the like soft progressive liberal base that he's trying to appeal to. He doesn't, he's not trying to appeal to 
you know, the Sinophobic core, you know, segment that's out there. He's not trying to, I guess he's not trying to appeal to the Hong Kong diaspora in Vancouver or the Hong Kong diaspora in Canada that's fled some of the persecution and some of the crackdowns that have started there. But like e even your kind of less hawkish progressive types, you know, they are against genocide. Like y you would think that that would but so when they at don't, least wouldn't be a losing proposition to, and to so, take up. But I, my thesis is that when his base doesn't see it as a top issue or they're more focused on domestic issues, on the foreign policy, on the international relations issues, he's more willing to just play the how do I get along with others and there his audience is China where he's trying to build more trade relations and trying not to anger them in the way that Trump's chaotic foreign policy did, for example. It's not great, it's not helpful, but I can kind of understand it from that point of view. I don't know, I, I still have trouble with that because he was real quick to adopt the term back in 2019. And like, if he seriously believed that that was the correct term, he should have resigned. If there is anything that ought to be a resignable government's fall offense at the very least, it is this. And the fact that kind of everyone shrugged and moved on, it really made the whole thing feel pretty hollow and yet it nevertheless did quite diminish Canada internationally like it did hurt our global reputation I guess it's a favorite topic of whataboutism every time Canadians criticize human rights violations abroad and in this case on when talking about China here he made the point that there's you know international repercussions using that word would bring a bunch of obligations but like the same could be true but what he said back in 2019 and you know as a leader of a country you want to make sure that that is in fact 100% the case before you just admit it because in theory, that could have triggered a bunch of or bunch of sanctions against Canada. Other countries would have been compelled to act. Hell, there are some international doctrines that would open up Canada to like, forceful interventions. It, it is not, very much not a term to use lightly. Yet he kind of did back then, and you know, thankfully, none of those things that could have happened happened. But like. It, it's just altogether feels like a, a prime minister that is incoherent, inconsistent, and rather unserious on topics of supreme seriousness. I don't disagree with your final point there, but I mean, it sounds almost like you're arguing he just like shouldn't have accepted the findings of the inquiries that have thoroughly delved through the history of this country and performed a thorough, you know, a legal analysis of the term to come to that conclusion 
Whereas I think the better well, argument is the other side. I mean, but, right? That so what's happening in Canada is or has been more of a slow genocide, whereas the one happening in China is much faster, more tra traditional style one. <laughs> they're both they're both bad. Well, I mean, like I said uh, at the start of this, th there were several human rights groups, experts in the field, you know, knowledgeable people on the subject that took issue with that characterization. And I think it would have been very fair for him to say that you know the we accept that there's you know. Significant he did that on the first day, though, right? You know, basically, it's that murdered when the mis murdered and missing Pardon? Indigenous women and girls report came out. He didn't use the word. He said it sounds very serious. I accept the findings, but I and he didn't really address the word genocide. He just hemmed and hawed. And it was twenty four hours later. I was just looking he, at the news story. At, at one point on it, he did. It took him at least twenty four hours to come around to the word. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think it would have been the sensible thing to do at is to not it's to accept the findings in terms of the documented abuses but not the categorization so the, of them in the activities happening in china though are also disputed they're largely disputed by the chinese state but you can find a number of other i'm sure experts and people who will say and come to that def their defense if there's controversy, should are you saying now that we sh Trudeau shouldn't speak up? No, no, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I, I think the documentation over what's happened in China is pretty clear and unambiguous, and it very clearly fits the the definition on there. I, I'm saying like for the same reason, you know, it is generally inadvisable to make admissions of a legal nature without first considering all the ramifications in just everyday life, in criminal inquiries and investigations, the, the same thing should apply to the leader of a country when taking responsibility on behalf of the entire country and his own government. I mean, I don't want to belabor this argument too much longer, but I mean, you can almost apply the same kind of a logic around you don't want to defame others without being very clear and i you know i think we can be pretty clear about what's happening in china but maybe trudeau doesn't feel as strongly for whatever reason like yeah it's a mess he probably should just use the term but i can see the geopolitical reasons he's eager not to poke the bear i can kind of get that but at the same time at, at some point you do actually need to call a spade a spade on this one. And practically speaking, there's no way Canada can intervene to the point of stopping it. But at the very least, call it what it is. And that seems to be a pretty low bar and pretty reasonable. And going forward, not just on this, but in general, in our relationship with China, the kind of go along to get along approach, I think is becoming increasingly untenable in a variety of aspects. And this is just the latest thing. So in the one area that Trudeau has not and signaled his virtue, he should. Yeah, it's the weird exception to the rule, which is makes everything just weirder and worse.
speaking of virtue signaling, Canada's taking steps in a different way. We're not talking about genocide, but we are willing to talk about arbitrary detentions and how immoral they are. We have created a coalition with 57 countries to say arbitrarily detaining people is bad. No one should do it. I mean, that seems reasonable. What's What happens if we do say something's bad in this case? As far as I can tell, bupkis. Yeah, so that's the problem on this that I have too, is that it, it is good to declare something immoral, but when dealing with a country of China's power and influence, or even Russia, which is the other one that isn't really named explicitly, but everyone kind of is looking at as the, oh yeah, this is the other country this is very clearly aimed at. A country candidate size is not actually going to be able to realistically do much to disincentivize that. I mean, I, we should not be giving into their hostage taking demands and, but like, just not doing that alone is probably not going to be enough to discourage it. And having countries coordinate with each other to act in unison is a way to counter the size and power of a China, but you actually have to do the hard work of setting up those kind of international institutions, relations that can actually leverage multiple countries to push back against this. And yeah, a declaration that just says this is bad and we disapprove of it is, I suppose, better than nothing on that front. But it really does need to be the case that if China or Russia or any other country arbitrarily detains an Australian citizen to try and put pressure on Australia, that Canada, the US, the UK, the EU, all act in coordination to sanction that country, push back, basically use the combined influence of all of them to counter that. And yeah, I think virtue signaling might be the right call description on this case where if you're not actually going to do the hard work of building that net step, it doesn't really serve you very well. And this government in particular loves to do the big splashy branding exercises, but has often fallen flat in translating that into tangible outputs. And this seems to be another one of those cases. It's so soft. Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau, who was recently appointed to that role, he said the declaration is, quote, country agnostic in an interview. Like they're just basically saying like, we're saying these things are bad. Are you saying China's doing something is bad? We're saying if a country does it, they're bad. China is doing this. Are you saying they're bad? Meh. Like, what's the point? Yeah, and that's kind of yeah, with yeah, this government's approach to China overall is like like I was saying, I, I think the go along to get along thing's gonna be increasingly untenable and for that reasons like this. China is acting as a bad actor, in this case by kidnapping two Canadians. I believe previous there's been previous instances directed against Australia. Two and like, you actually need to do more than just 
quietly, you know, do a declaration that declares the general act, but without naming the person committing it or the country committing it. It's just kind of, yeah, I think it's ultimately untenable and not going to actually get any of the results that are needed. And, you know, the, the world that we both kind of grew up in where there was a more or less a uni where the international order was, I think much more cooperative and unipolar. And that's not really going to be the case going forward. And there are going to be starker geopolitical divisions and Canada needs to start crafting a foreign policy that actually recognizes those divisions exist. It's, and aligns itself in relation to that in a way that advances Canadian interests and interests of aligned countries. And that has not been how Ottawa's approached China at any point recently. I mean, I, I push back on that in that I think they're, you know, my fundamental values are still more Globalist isn't the right word. Multinationalist, internationalist is probably a bit better of a term in approach. Like the other thing that's rising in the background to this discussion is anti Asian hate crimes are up significantly. People see China after China after China bad story. And while we can have debates about the specifics and the crimes of the government, not everyone is taking it so nuanced and xenophobia is real and you know i've witnessed it within you know people i know from across the country starting to take really disgusting views that we need to be careful in this language we need to be a bit more i i think people need to be our media is so bad at just discussing foreign policy in general, but particularly when there's such a long and deep racist history connecting, especially here in Vancouver, anti-Asian racism. We need to approach this all critically and carefully, at very least. Don't be a dick, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't be racist, don't commit hate crimes. And yeah, it needs to be done in a way that can separate people living here from the country they came from and, and not be racist about. It, yeah, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese state is very much a bad actor on the world stage and it's actively antagonistic towards Canada and our interests and our allies. But yeah, the, has no bearing on how we should treat or our fellow people or even people who live in China. <laughs> like Yeah, that too. There is a there's over a billion people in that country. They have a billion different views. <laughs> Moving into quick takes, a first hearing a first decision in a controversial judicial case between the province and the public health officer against three churches in the Fraser Valley has come down as Chief Justice Hinkson refused to grant an injunction 
which would effectively allow the cops to go in and shut down churches that are continuing to hold services during COVID-19. This whole case started when three Fraser Valley Evangelical Christian churches sued the province over the public health orders, which closed all religious gatherings in the province because of the risk of spread. The ruling was actually kind of interesting because this is this isn't deciding the merits of the case. This is deciding whether the courts should have the cops essentially enforce the public health order in the meantime. You read the decision. I didn't have time to go through it as thoroughly. Do you want to walk us through like just the key highlights that you pulled out? Yeah. So yeah, I did do a quick read of this. So maybe a couple of the more finer legal points I didn't pick up on, but basically the decision centered around two things that there are just other tools the public health officer has to enforce the order and that as a result, this isn't like most other requests for injunctions where the parties are reliant on the courts to to enforce their uh, rights in the situation or their... The PHO, the public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, can literally ask the cops to do it. She doesn't need the courts to do it. Yeah. Yeah, she has direct abilities to intervene in this case. And it. the judge basically thought that they didn't need to go to the courts for this. They didn't use their inherent powers or the, the powers that are granted to them under the uh, relevant legislation to act directly in this case. And that as a result, it's why come to us basically was his takeaway there or the, the meat of the decision. And then the other interesting part of it was that in the decision, Justice Hinkson raised the issue that in light of the prosecution service not enforcing a previously granted injunction against a blockade of the Port of Vancouver, basically the, the people violated the injunction, arrests were made, prosecution service declined to bring contempt of court charges in that instance, that he basically didn't feel confident that if he was to grant an injunction and that it was violated that there would actually be accountability in this case and that he, it, it almost read like he didn't trust the prosecution service to do their job in this and that he felt it would not it would basically diminish justice if it, it was seen not to the equitable rule of law in this country when our chief justice is like it probably won't happen so i won't ask them to do it yeah, like that, 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 there's got to be a few people who were at the prosecution service who were uncomfortable reading that bit of the decision. Like, it, it's not great when the chief justice of the province is basically telling the prosecution service he doesn't really trust them to enforce con or bring forth contempt of court charges when his orders are yeah, violated. Yeah, neither of us are lawyers or legal experts and haven't spent a lot of time looking at this, but this half or this second point seems to have less legal, like it, it doesn't feel as legally justified to me as the first argument. Like it just feels like a, like I don't see the rationale that 
I don't think it'll work, so I'm not going to pass this anyway. Like, I'm sure that there was more to it than that in the ruling, but it feels a lot flimsier. Yeah, I, I think it's concerning when the chief justice has feels he needs to voice this. But yeah, it's. I think the more salient legal point was basically the balance of convenience test didn't really favor an injunction because there was already a method uh, to enforce the public health orders that is separate from this. So the main meat of the arguments will be heard in March, and it's unclear how quickly Hinkson or the court will deliver a verdict after that, but you know, it centers on this balancing between public health and protecting the broader society and religious freedoms as they are of congregations. It'll be really interesting. I'm really interested to see how this goes and how it gets argued. Yeah, it's, a, it's also going to be interesting to see if the public health officer, and in the decision, it is mentioned that the PHO is not confident they actually have this ability separate from the courts, but that's clearly not what the judge found. It's going to be interesting to see if they move separately to enforce this before the main arguments are in March. Well, moving on to our next quick take, Andrew Wilkinson resigned again. So after the last election, Andrew Wilkinson announced he was stepping down as leader of the BC Liberal Party. Everyone had kind of figured he did that when he said so. Shirley Bond was appointed the interim leader. Then like a couple weeks ago, it came out that he never actually put in the paperwork to officially step down. He was kind of just hanging on as leader officially as, as far as the party constitution was concerned, well after an interim leader had been appointed. But now, finally, as of yesterday, he is no longer leader as he has formally resigned. So it seemed like and, the hanging on was less about him and more about just playing by the letter of the rules rather than the spirit that if he's still technically leader, they don't have the one-year window to hold their leadership race in. So it could be delayed longer, which like I'm not saying he was purposely doing anything slimy, but the whole thing feels a bit insincere. Yeah, so he, he was probably, yeah, there were, the party executive had probably quietly asked him to not formally put in the paperwork for a little while. There's, yeah, a, a fair bit of uncertainty and kind of mixed feelings about the direction the party wants to go. There's definitely been calls for kind of a long leadership race to figure this stuff out. I personally think that's actually a pretty bad idea and a quick leadership race of say three months followed by a longer time for the new leader to kind of set the direction they want to go introduce themselves to the province and all that's the actually better strategy because long leadership races are terrible they they breed internal conflicts in the party like it's just a bad idea i don't know why parties keep wanting to trade them out longer than they do but yeah, regardless, that seems to have kind of been the rationale for this. And even if you 
unlike me, except that that is in the best interest of the party. Put that to the members. Like, don't try and weasel your way around the letter of the law on this one. Just or weasel your way around the spirit of the law by very closely following the letter of the law and trying to loophole your way out of it. Clearly, the party thought that it was a bad idea to extend a leaderless period longer than a year. That's why they have a rule on it in their constitution. If you want to make the case why that should not be this governing principle going forward anymore, make the case the leadership amend the party constitution to do it. Don't do this kind of shitty trying to work around the actual rules to try and drag this out longer because you want it to be a longer process. Well, now that he has officially resigned, the vote will be held before February 16th, 2022. And the first MLA to throw their name into the ring is Skeena MLA Ellis Ross. He is the lone Indigenous BC Liberal MLA, as far as I know. And the yeah, as I said, the first to announce was elected in 2017. And weirdly, his announcement was more of a he confirms he's going to run to the terrorist standard. He has no official team yet, and it seems like he had no actual launch strategy, which may be a sign of how this leadership race is going to go. I don't think it's a good sign for him, at least. It's a little weird. I, he's had long been rumored to be running in this. It was pretty much expected that he'd enter the race. But yeah, just confirming it here rather than doing an official launch event seems kind of weird and not ideal. But I don't know. It, it's a year-long leadership race, presumably. I mean, I'm, I'm going to presume that if the party asks Andrew Wilkinson to stay on the longer to drag this out, it's probably going to be a February 2022 rather than a July 2021 type thing. Nobody's going to remember how good someone's campaign launch was a year later it's good to try and get a little momentum out of it and and you know get a couple of good days pr and, and press coverage and whatnot but like i think this is one of those things where strategists will spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do the perfect campaign launch really try and make it right for their candidate and if it's a year-long campaign it's just not significant because there's just so many other things going to happen in that time. So, yeah, it, it probably would get bad marks on the next episode of The Strategist, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to make a big deal, I don't think. What is interesting here is... I'm just more wondering if it's a foreshadowing factor in how Ross's almost maverickish nature will maybe not help him run or maybe it will and he just won't run a traditional leadership candidate yeah i i, I can see him actually being relatively appealing to a lot of the the base do of the a party. quick intro of elis ross for those who so haven't sure he's heard really of him maybe so here's the mla from stina previously was an elected counselor of the Heisla Nation. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that, sir. Yeah, and in, he's an indigenous politician, which I think would actually make it quite an interesting dynamic if he was to become leader and kind of upset a lot of the established um, assumptions and narratives that 
exist out there that are never really all that accurate, but definitely have nevertheless instilled themselves into the general perceptions of things. So he, that would be quite, I think an interesting thing if he did win on that front. I, I think probably best well known in terms of his political positions and advocacy around LNG development and small businesses. In particular, he's generally been very pro LNG development on the economic uh, development for uh, First Nations. Definitely be interesting to see how he performs in the leadership race. I know there's some criticism, at least on the left of him, as there will be of all candidates, but that he's oh, yeah. no, I mean- a little less accepting of climate change than some of the other BC Liberals, but I'm hopeful all BC Liberals will at least start from like the Gordon Campbell level environmentalism, where they can be pro-carbon tax and market-based solutions and at least steering us in not the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I, I do expect that if he becomes a, a significant figure in the leadership race or wins overall, that he would yeah, definitely annoy a lot of the more left-leaning vote. He, I'm not sure he's going to be the trigger of the, it's not really trigger of the libs in this case. I, I'm important in Americanism there. Trigger the NDP candidate, but he, he would be a relatively strong contender. No, that's going to be Aaron title, Gunn. Depending on who else enters. Yeah, depending on who else enters the race. So yeah, Aaron Gunn's been uh, floated around on that. This means some oddly sourced Facebook ads trying to draft him, which... Are probably not nearly as organic as they're trying to make themselves appear. Kevin Falcon's widely expected to enter the race. I've heard about a couple other people uh, who may be entering, but they've not announced or made final decisions yet. So, um, yeah, likely we'll see several more candidates in this before things finalize. But party hasn't even announced the date or the rules yet, so plenty left to happen here. And finally. John Horgan wants you to know that he doesn't know what the SkyTrain is. This is at Dr. John Horgan, who writes on Twitter, Canadian friends, those of you writing me to complain about delays to the proposed SkyTrain project deal, I appreciate your frustration and know there are implications for the whole province, not just UBC. I am not the John Horgan you seek. So yeah, it turns out that there's a John Horgan that uh, teaches at a university down in Georgia. And it's apparently been getting correspondence aimed at the John Horgan that runs the province. Naturally, our John Horgan had to quote tweet this with some attempted humor. I don't know how well this one lands. It's not offensive, though. I knew something was up when I was mailed all those Georgia State University psychology papers to Mark. And then he posted the Spider-Man pointing at himself gif. And then he did a second reply saying, sorry for the mix up. When it's safe, you'll have to come to visit beautiful BC. And he took a picture of a postcard he was going to send Dr. John Horgan. I feel like he missed a better joke, but I can't think of it. Yeah, there may be a better joke there, but I don't know. It's I'm feeling the dad joke things wearing a little thin and like it was fine kind of you know, pre-pandemic times, 2017 when he was first elected, you know, during the the good times. Like I don't know. We're a year into this thing now. The the dad joke thing kind of 
feels a little worn out and just kind of just fits the damn pandemic problems is where I think a lot more people are at. And I, I don't know. It's, I, I'm sure there are some people that still appeals to, but like, it feels like it's a smaller portion every day. This isn't as good to me as when Aaron O'Toole was elected conservative leader and a random Aaron O'Toole in the States kept getting tagged in on things. And she eventually said, wait, I'm just learning about all of this. Who is this politician? And then she was like, wow, I am not him. I found that a bit more amusing. Just like watching a random American learn about Canadian politics. Yeah, there's also Jason Kenney down in the States somewhere that keeps getting uh, tagged and stuff for the other Jason Kenney. But it happens. It'll never happen to me as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think for the last name like mine, I'm very confident it's not going to happen to me ever. Well, from the original and only Ian Bushfield and Scott Delange Boone, have a good week. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>